0: What terror capitalism does and is, is it, it's, a, it's a, a new frontier of global capitalism. It's, it's a space where a, a population of people is made detainable under the sign of terrorism and therefore made productive as workers.
1: That was Darren Baylor who explained his conception of terror capitalism, a term which he uses to talk about the current situation, the suppression of the Uyghurs in northwest China. The talk is part of the series China and the Left, Critical Analysis and Grassroot Activism and took place on January 9th. It was moderated by Ralf Rokus. Have fun while listening. Okay, welcome to this session of the online discussion series. As some of you know, uh, we have, again, the series China and the Left Critical Analysis and Grassroots Activism to Discuss Social Processes and Struggles in China, as well as China's Role in Global Capitalism. Uh, we got really good feedback and then decided to, uh, to continue the series. Yeah, this, this event today will be on, on Xinjiang. Um, I will speak about that in in a minute. The next uh, event will take place in two weeks on the left in Taiwan. And then in early February, we will speak about feminism in China again. More events are actually planned. We will announce them soon. Today will be um, Darren Beiler. I will introduce him in a minute. Before I I turn uh, over to Darren, just a few comments on Xinjiang in in general and why We want to talk about this, these events in Northwest China or Xinjiang and Shed Light on it from a left-wing perspective. Um, Maybe some of you know um, this, but but I thought it would be good to to give a short uh, intro here. Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region, it's the the official term for this part of of, uh, the People's Republic of China. The the Uyghurs uh, themselves, um, or or Uyghurs themselves call it East Turkestan. about the size of Iran fairly big about 25 million people and roughly half of them are Uyghur or to a smaller extent Kazakh or from other Turkic groups and about 40% are Han Chinese. The economy is um, on one hand is is dominated by agriculture, cotton, fruit, vegetables are produced there. And on the other hand, uh, oil and gas uh, production both is actually a result of, of pretty recent development, state investments in infrastructure and development in the 1990s and, and since. And uh, at the same time, there was a, a new wave of larger Han migration into uh, the region that changed the composition uh, of the population. We will get back to that later. In the past few years, uh, actually Xinjiang has been also uh, become uh, important as a hub for the uh, regime's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, It's uh, on the transport line to the Middle East and to Europe. So it also has a a strategic um, importance there economically and also obviously militarily, politically. Uh, Discontent um, because of colonialism and Uyghur oppression has been an issue for a long time, not just in the last few years, but it took a different form since uh, 2014 uh, when the Reim after a series of violent incidents and attacks by Uyghur separatists declared um, so-called people's war on terror. And subsequently the Chinese state started to systematically criminalize any behavior that it saw as a sign of Islamism and Islamist terror uh, on the side of the uh, Uyghur, uh, Kazakh, and other Turkic minority population. Hundreds of thousands of them were, were detained the mobility and migration was restrained, and the, the regime built a comprehensive surveillance system. That campaign was further in te- intensified after 2017, with mass internment of one million or more in uh, re camps and prisons, and the construction of what can be called a panoptical police state now, what, what interests us is that actually there hasn't been any larger left-wing response or campaign against this oppression of Uyghurs or and the other uh, Muslim population there, similar to let's say the campaigns uh, uh, in support of, of Palestinians. There has been a human rights discourse and recently some discussion uh, about the usage of Uh, Forced labor from the region for export production and factories and agriculture in China, but not there hasn't been like a like a focused discussion on capitalist interest involved or a connection between. These capitalist interests with a cultural genocide and forms of gendered and racialized oppression and violence in Xinjiang so that you know we ask ourselves so why is that and to get a better understanding of these aspects and, and possible. Yeah, future discussions, left wing discussions or, or actions and campaigns. We invited uh, Darren Beiler. Uh, Darren is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And he researches the dispossession of ethno-racial Muslim minorities through forms of surveillance and digital capitalism in China and Southeast Asia. Uh, his first book will, will come out this year, as I understand, um, Duke University Press will publish it. It's called Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City. And it examines emergent form of ethno-racialization, capitalism, and state power in the Uyghur region in Xinjiang. He's also um, working on a second book titled Technologies of Reeducation. education and that considers the social life of surveillance technology among ethnic and racial minorities in China and around the world. So Darren, uh, welcome. I'm really looking uh, forward to your input. Stage is yours.
0: Great, thank you so much for the invitation and for all of you for coming. It's a real honor to be here. In my 10 minutes here at the beginning, I'd just like to go over some of the, the key concepts, the key ideas that I do and uh, that I work on So I'll be thinking through the way that material and digital enclosures have transformed the the Uyghur population in Northwest China and how we can think about that as a a form of original accumulation or primitive accumulation. And at the same time, we should think about it as connected to a, a contemporary form of colonialism and also the global discourse of terrorism. So just a sort of set the stage for all of this, in order to understand these concepts, we need to go back to the 1990s, which is when China began a process of opening up to the West, opening up to Europe and, and the United States, North America, becoming a manufacturer of the world. It was turning towards, towards a capitalist economy. Um, and in order to drive that, that, that new economy, they needed resources, they needed raw materials, it became quite strategic for for Chinese authorities to think about where they could source oil and natural gas, for instance. And so it was during this period that we, we first started to see the hard infrastructure of pipelines and roads really begin to be built in Northwest China. Xinjiang is, is the source of around 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas. And so in the 90s, uh, this hard infrastructure was 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 put in place um, and it brought with it millions of of uh, Han migrants to the region. You know, there had been a Han population in the region before, already in the 1950s, there was Han folks that had lived in Northern Xinjiang on the other side of the mountains from, from the Uyghur majority areas. But in the nineties, it was really the first time that, that a large scale Han settlement uh, began to emerge in the the Uyghur majority areas, places where it's 90 to 100% Uyghur. And so over time, there was a a build out of this this infrastructure. There was a new service economy that that sprung up around it to support that that infrastructure development and resource extraction. Um, And so really what we were seeing over time was an enclosure of the commons. Um, This is a really old story in capitalist expansion, which is, you know, the way that fencing, the way that roads begin to push people off of off of land, um, Marx talks about it in relation to 18th and 19th century England, the enclosure movement there. Really, what we're seeing in Xinjiang in the 1990s was something similar. It was an introduction of the Uyghurs to to the market economy and the freedom of the market, uh, as Marx talks about it. They became free to starve or free to find wage labor, uh, because the 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 sort of subsistence farming that they had been doing in the past was no longer you know, enough to really sustain their, their livelihoods. Um, and in many cases, they were simply being pushed off of their land. Um, and so people were increasingly desperate. They were looking for ways into the new economy. They were being proletarianized in a certain way, although there really wasn't even at that point any space for them to actually find wage jobs in factories. since There were no factories available to them. In general what's happening in this context is is what Marx would refer to as primitive accumulation or original accumulation, uh, which is when material objects, material things that are no longer were were previously not part of the economy or part of the market were suddenly turned into a commodity form. Um, And So we can think about that in relation to the natural resources and then eventually we can think about it in terms of, of of Uyghur labor itself. It's important to note and what the Uyghur case is showing us is that original accumulation is not a point in time event. It's not something that just happened in the 18th or 19th century in England. Um, It's happening all the time. It's ongoing. This is what studies of racial capitalism show us that marginalized populations, marginalized peoples are often targeted with sort of the frontier expansion of capitalism into new domains. It's also important to understand that this is a, a kind of internal settler colony to China. Does Uyghurs speak a different language. They speak Uyghur. Um, they are Muslim. They're indigenous to the space that's being occupied. And because of that, what's happening in this context is not just what David Harvey might refer to as accumulation through dispossession, which is more of like a, a class-based antagonism where poor people are taken advantage of. It, in this context, it's something more than that. Uh, it's, it's, Accumulation through a, a kind of epistemic and institutional elimination and replacement. And so there's a, a deeper form of symbolic, even cosmological violence that's, that's, that's happening in this context. The, the Uyghur life world itself is being taken over and replaced with something else. I've been thinking recently with the work of CK Lee who's 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 doing research in hon- contemporary co- Hong Kong and thinking about how Hong Kong is now beginning to function as a kind of colony and what she points in at in her work is that institutional capture is really where you begin to to measure how a, a colony is progressing when the education systems the financial systems uh, the legal systems, when they're taken over by the colonizer, that's when you know that, that, uh, that colonization is, is happening. And for the Uyghurs, this began to happen really in the 2000s when that settler population began to take over the Uyghur institutions. That's when we started to see you know, the loan officers in the banks, who previously might have been Uyghur, be replaced by settlers, Uyghurs being pushed into sort of uh, positions with less power in the banks. You know, they became the bank tellers. Uyghur teachers in the schools were pushed into janitorial positions. Caregivers in their homes became street sweepers. There was really a a fracture of these basic institutions of Uyghur society, the things that that sort of allowed Uyghurs to reproduce themselves. And it went not just from those sort of larger institutions but also the, the very kind of core institutions of Uyghur society, the family itself eventually began to fracture. In 2010, uh, digital infrastructure arrived really for the first time in the form of 3G networks. And this seemed to promise Uyghurs a a kind of way out. It promised them that there were opportunities in the city. They started to, to find ways of organizing themselves in community there. They were using a new app called WeChat, which allowed them to use social media for the first time because they could use the oral speech function um, and just simply talk to each other in Uyghur. And and so new media promised them that, that there was opportunity out there. It also began to show them that they were connected to global Islam, that Islam itself, which was something that all of them shared in common, what could be thought of as in relation to people in other places, particularly in places like Turkey. Um, and so there was a real sort of flourishing of, of religious learning, of cultural learning, among the Uyghur uh, society. People didn't really, really understand, at least initially, that that smartphones were not simply uh, devices for private public speech and for exploring the world, but they also became tracking devices. And post two thousand seventeen, smartphone activity really began to result in first data harvesting. Uh, from private tech firms in China, and then eventually was used as evidence for internment. Uh, past activity on, on smartphones uh, became a sign of whether this person or not was trustworthy. There's scholarship that's, that's shown that data intensive industries that are built through private public partnerships, particularly partnerships with the police, are really um, essential to the growth of computer vision technology, Uh, And at this point now, some of these firms in China, which are private firms, but also some of them are are state-owned, that they're now really leading the world when it comes to computer vision, artificial intelligence, particularly face recognition and voice recognition. And so in that sense, they're beginning to compete with American firms. Um, and it's important to note that this is not unique to China, that you know, Amazon and IBM have also partnered with, with state authorities and are doing quite similar work, similar work to what these firms in China are doing. This system though goes beyond what those systems do in the US or Europe, which is often sort of push undocumented people or people that are on watch list into sort of the gray zone of the economy. In this context, the technologies and, the, and the, the carceral system begins to produce a new regime of forced labor. And here I'm thinking with some of the work of, of scholars uh, that have studied migrant labor in Eastern China, people like Punai who talked to, about a, a dormitory labor regime uh, which is the normative form of, of, of economic production in Eastern China where migrants are housed in the same place where they do their production. In this context, it's a similar dynamic, a dormitory labor regime, but it's something more than that because they're not ever permitted to leave the space, they can't freely choose to be there. Um, And so it's actually a a kind of a workhouse environment. The Chinese state plans to move around 1 million textile jobs to the Xinjiang region as part of a poverty alleviation effort. That's how it's, it's officially labeled. The Xinjiang region produces around 84% of Chinese cotton, so it makes a lot of sense to relocate manufacturing. It's not only people that have been in camps that are being sent into these factories, but also farmers who are deemed surplus laborers, um, whose work as farmers is not valued as as work as as such. Inside these factory spaces, there's monitored labor in terms of camera systems inside and also just you know normal factory surveillance. But there's also monitoring of movement outside of the factory. So there's checkpoints at the entrances to the factories and then there's checkpoints beyond those checkpoints. It's a whole system of, of checkpoints. What's really holding people in place and making them productive in the, in the factory space is really the threat of the camp. Those people are told over and over again that if they don't work well, that they can be sent to the camp, particularly the people that have been in the camp before. Um, and so really what it's doing is, is producing a kind of re-education labor regime, which is how I, I think about it in my work. In 2018 and 19, the authorities in Xinjiang started to talk about the camp system as a carrier of the economy because the factories were becoming productive. Um, and so it was now talked about as sort of on the level of the oil and the natural gas of Xinjiang, that, that the, the camps now are, are starting to drive the economy. All of this is happening under the sign of terrorism which is something that entered China really after 2001, prior to this terrorism as a discourse didn't exist in China and is now really only associated with Muslim populations and every once in a while with, with Tibetans and now sometimes with people in Hong Kong, but it's, it's minority folks that are seen as threatening to national stability. What it, the terrorism discourse does everywhere in the world is it, it produces a, a, a racialized other that can be detainable. Uh, is made detainable through state power. In the Euro-American context, this produces forms of banishment, pushing people into a kind of parallel economy on the margins of society. But what the Xinjiang case shows us is that in contemporary colonial contexts, it does something more. It produces a transformation of the population. It produces a a kind of unfree proletariat, that's what at least is happening in Xinjiang. So just to to sort of put a button on on my remarks, what terror capitalism does and is, is it's a a, a new frontier of global capitalism. It's it's a space where a a population of people is made detainable under the sign of terrorism and therefore made productive as workers. So I'll leave it at that. And I'm happy to take any questions and look forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that was a very interesting uh, introduction. Actually, um, there is one question that I think from from the audience that I, I want to put to you straight away, and that is about uh, Uyghur resistance, you know, or, or Uyghur separatism, uh, or what the government calls terrorism. Is there actually a threat? Are these forms of repression that you, you described also a reaction to, to certain forms of rep- uh, resistance, or Are there just uh, paranoia, racism? Mm -hmm.
0: There certainly has been real forms of violence. And in some cases, even violence that meets international standards of terrorism. For instance, the the incidents that happened in Kunming in uh, April of of, uh, 2014, even before that, there was a, a SUV that was driven into tourists by a family of Uyghurs in Tiananmen Square. There's other incidents that have happened in Xinjiang itself that that meet sort of those international standards. These are carried out by a small number of individuals. It's not clear always what their intentions were or what their motivations were. In some cases, it appears as though, you know, they were responding to forms of injustice in their own lives. But I'm not here to justify their actions at all. And, And, you know, every state, every society, Deserves to live in peace, and and you know, violence should be addressed. In general, though, terrorism in Xinjiang is not those things. It's uh, in, in in terms of you know most incidents that are described as terrorism, the majority of them are interactions between Uyghur individuals, mostly men, and police, often in response to a police brutality. Sometimes it's you know people protesting over land seizures, protesting police brutality, and then there 's a crackdown from the police. You, you know The police are the only ones that are armed in this in these encounters, and typically you know sh- there's there's lethal violence that's used and then after the fact, it's labeled a terrorist event um, it's not that that's the only kind of incident that 's happened, but it's a frequent kind of incident that 's happened. <laughs> And you know, because a, a lot of times the interaction is between individuals and the state, it, it also doesn't really meet the the standards of, of what we might refer to as terrorism, which is you know action that's carried out towards civilians. In any case, the, the people that have carried out violent act, acts in Xinjiang are a very small minority. you know maybe several hundred, maybe a thousand people. That does not justify detaining, you know, a million and a half people, and really sort of criminalizing an entire population. So that's that's uh, I think how we should think about this as as a a really really strong overreaction. That's really built out of a kind of fear and Islamophobia. There is a lot of fear towards Uyghurs that that they will carry out actions, even if you know they're not religious, they don't have any intention. That that's how they're read, and so. That's really, I think, motivating a lot of the, the harshness of the crackdown, is a kind of fear. And then there's also the desire for the resources. There's the threat of you know people having been dispossessed wanting their possessions back. So that's that's part of the dynamic that's here as well.
1: Yeah, staying staying surely with the with the with the terror aspect. Uh, the Chinese regime declared uh, like the people's war on terror, and I think in 2014. In, in, in some of your work, you, you point out that there are actually lines between the, or connections between the American, the US-American strategies used in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and, and the forms that the Chinese regime is using in Xinjiang. Can you, can you explain uh, us more on that?
0: Sure. So prior to September 11th, violence that was carried out by Uyghurs, if it existed, was typically referred to as separatism, that Uyghurs wanted to have their own ethno state and, and that was the reason why there was violence. That was also not necessarily accurate. In many cases, that's not the cause of the violence. It was, you know, about a local dispute instead. But within one month of September 11th, the state began to use the rhetoric of terrorism to describe Uyghurs. Uh, it was on the one month anniversary that they first began to use the term very quickly over time, they began to think about the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which was based in Pakistan as a terrorist group. And so within a year, we with the support of the U.S., with a CIA investigation, they labeled that group a terrorist group. That that group is sort of a fiction, I mean, it's a, it's a phantom group. It's really hard to know exactly how it existed at that point in time. There was maybe a set, like, you know, a half a dozen people, maybe fewer than that, that were in Pakistan that were claiming to be part of this group. They mostly had an online presence. But it, it seemed to be strategic from the US perspective to label this group a terrorist group and, and therefore get more support in the war in Iraq from China. So there was some collaboration that was happening there. There was also, a, you know, around 20 or so. Uyghurs that were detained in Afghanistan and were sent to Guantanamo Bay. Very quickly, it was it came to be clear that these people were not a threat in any way; that they had really been sort of turned over to this to the U.S. military for a bounty. They weren't, you know, trained terrorists in in any sense. They were all released eventually and are now living, you know, freely in other places in the world. Over time. The, the war on terror in, in Iraq came to be framed around counterinsurgency. There was a new military doctrine called the Petraeus Doctrine that was written um, that really talks about mapping an entire population in order to, to detect you know, who is the, the insurgent population, who's the sort of neutral population and who's the counterinsurgent population, you know the people that are with us. And through that mapping, then you, you, you can detain the leaders of these groups and send them into detention. That's where the term detainee really comes from. And it's sort of contemporary use is, is from the Iraq war when we detained, the USC detained lots and lots of people. There's in addition to that, the third element of counterinsurgency theory which is winning the hearts and minds which is transforming the population through infrastructure building, through job creation, those sorts of things. It's very, that, that is now sort of standard military theory in the world. A lot of wars are now being fought using this kind of thinking. And it very quickly you know, entered the Chinese discourse as well. And it, and it also back in the US began to enter the policing discourse. So military theory began to inform policing theory. And that's certainly the case in Xinjiang now. In addition to COIN, counterinsurgency theory, there's also a new theory for domestic wars on terror, which are is countering violent extremism, which is a kind of, or CVE programs, which are sort of a, a pre, pre, preventative policing program, where you if you see something, you say something. So you should get the teachers, get the leaders in the mosque to inform on their populations. Um, if you see someone who appears to be radicalizing or becoming... Uh, religious, too pious in their practice, that should be read as a sign of potential violence or potential terrorism down the road. And so you should alert the authorities and they can intervene. Um, It's really a kind of profiling of of Muslim people and also a misreading of of pious practice as necessarily leading to violence. There's not really any strong evidence to to support that. But it's now really become widespread in in European and American contexts. And it's something that has been adapted in uh, China as well. Um, there's some key texts that are written by these CVE theorists um, and also coin theorists that have been translated into Chinese and have now kind of been sort of standard for understanding you know, what policing should look like. That has been adapted even further to you know, the to Chinese characteristics. They actually use that term uh, to talk about CVE with Chinese characteristics or preventative policing with Chinese characteristics and it really is now you know working within the sort of socialist legacy of, of governance where there's you know neighborhood watch units or or shachus community organizations that are responsible for you know groupings of 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 of, of, of housing of of neighborhoods And so at a grassroots level, the Neighborhood Watch Unit is now responsible for this kind of preventative policing. And then over time, they also started to talk about transformation, that that the populations that are backward really need to be reeducated. And there they're building on a different legacy, one that's coming out of the Cultural Revolution and other sources of a system of re-education through hard labor is, is one of the, the things that they're thinking about or the Lao guy system, which is which is which is similar to sort of camp system. That's now been adapted to this new context where it's about retraining people based on their ideological and religious affiliation. So it's it's picking up on some of the the logics of counter countering violent extremism or counterterrorism. And then adapting them to this local context, but really kind of taking them to their logical conclusion. When you have watch lists, which is what the countering terrorism is all about, it's there is a, a kind of segmenting of the population. What's happening in China and in Xinjiang is, is a, a sort of there's a greater political will to actually follow through on those watch lists to, to actually you know implement what it you know re-education in in. Other contexts, maybe civil protections, prevent that from happening.
1: Okay, um, one thing uh, I want to ask about the you know this methods of surveillance is actually the involvement of the local Han population, and especially the campaign, which you know again like there's, uh, there's some kind of connection between earlier campaigns in the socialist times and 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 now what's happening in Xinjiang with the what you call it relatives the relatives campaign where, where they send like uh, kind of work teams of K- uh, cadre into the villages. Can you can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, sure. So most of the Uyghur population is classified as rural. Their hukou is is in the villages, 80-85 percent. And although the infrastructure is much better than it was 10 or 20 years ago, those locations are still quite far from the city. It can take you know, 24 hours or 72 hours to to actually get to those cities from like the capital of of Urumqi, which is capital of Xinjiang. And so one of the things that they've had to do is they've had to send teams of workers from urban locations to these rural areas to really enact the re-education program. The initial targets of these re-education sort of visits were the relatives of detainees, people that have been sent to prison, have been sent to the camps. And so it's, it's and, and most of the people sent to camps and prisons are men, mostly between the ages of 18 and 55. So it's a lot of you know, women and children that are left in the families uh, that are receiving these visitors. So there's a gendered component to this as well. The, the visitors, when they arrive, they, they stay for a period of time. Uh, sometimes it's just for the weekend. Sometimes it's for a week at a time, but there's regular visits. And they are there to monitor the family. They're to make sure that the there's no more sort of religious materials in the home, that the people are no longer practicing Islam in a sort of in a regular sort of way, in terms of, you know, you know, are they praying after the meal? Even are they speaking Uyghur inside their home? Like they they want to make sure that the people are learning Chinese because everyone's supposed to be learning Chinese right now. Um, that's part of the, the re-education campaign. They say in the manuals that they use that they should ask the children questions about their parents, about their conditions, because they said the children you know won't lie; that they'll be honest with you, and so you should bring candy to give to the children and befriend them, um, and that's how you're really going to get you know real knowledge. Oftentimes, the people that are going into these homes are are people that are, um, they're traveling in small teams. So there's at least sometimes two people. Sometimes they're going with a translator interpreter because they the the family doesn't speak Chinese well enough yet. Oftentimes they're using the children themselves as translators and interpreters. So there's a real kind of intimacy of the state that's coming into someone's home that you have no way of refusing. In addition to the surveillance, there's also conversations about the person that's in detention. And they're trying to gauge whether the person is sort of, the, the people in the home are, are okay with that person being in detention. So typically in the police reports that come out of these visits, they they talk about how, you know, the person was was you know, really grateful to the party for this opportunity for their, their loved one to be in the camp and receive this education and that they'll all strive to do better so that they can be re- reunited more quickly, those sorts of things. It's, it's a really kind of unprecedented uh, system where there's a, a really actually a, a big brother in your home and it's, and it's at a really large scale. There are over a million people that have been sent into the people's homes in this way
1: yeah <clears throat> one thing that you know that's striking when you when you on one hand describe you know sort of the ca- capitalist reasoning behind it you know the the primitive accumulation and the transformation of the region um and also kind of the apartheid like system of separating the populations but in you know in order to create a kind of a you know colonized region that serves the capitalist needs and on, on the other hand you have sort of a ca- kind of cultural genocide with a kind of you know sort of the attempt to actually so eradicate like a certain forms of culture of language of of identity so um is you know where's the rationale? like why is the the ccp regime actually trying to destroy let's say this 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 cultural identity of these people mm-hmm. Well, the way that
0: they talk about it in the state literature is that they're trying to produce a kind of permanent stability or a long, it's a long term solution to the what they re- refer to as the Xinjiang problem or the Uyghur problem. And so I think they feel like, you know, it's it's a necessary kind of evil to, to accomplish this. Maybe they wouldn't even use those terms, but that's how some of the people I interviewed that are doing these visits, Han folks that I interviewed in 2018 talked about it, is that they understood this would be really hard for Uyghurs to, you know, be separated from each other, to have to abandon their former way of life, but they said, you know, in the long run, it'll they'll benefit from it. So it's kind of a, uh, a a sort of uh, you know, tough love, uh, I think, is how they might think about it, as um, something that's necessary. At the same time, though, there's also a kind of civilizational discourse that's part of this, where there's a sort of uh, Han or Chinese cultural uh, supremacy that's accompanying the the system, where, where Uyghurs are talked about, and Uyghur culture is talked about as backward, as uncivilized, Uyghurs are talked about as lazy, that they're not you know fully, uh, they, they don't have the training necessary to even be good workers in the factory. And so they need to be taught how to be workers, those sorts of things. And so there's sort of a gift of development, a gift of civilization that's being given to the Uyghurs. Uh, that's how it's, it's framed. There's also the, the discourse of Islam that's there is, is talked about as you know, as something that's foreign to the Uyghurs and foreign to China, that, that Islam is a, is a kind of virus that's sort of swept into Uyghur society in the last 10 to 20 years, I guess, through the internet, not realizing, realizing that Uyghurs have been Muslim you know, for centuries and centuries. And so it's not like they're just discovering Islam, like they've been Muslim all along. What's I think different is that they're they're starting to begin to align their Islamic practice with some practices in other places. The, the way that the state workers talked about this is that you know Uyghurs are ignorant and so they don't understand how harmful Islam actually is uh, these new sort of foreign forms of Islam um, and so they need to be taught you know that that Islam the sort of normative forms of Islam are, 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 are problematic for them. And so there's a, a kind of separating out of the sort of permitted forms of difference, the, the kind of cultural stuff that they like about Uyghurs from this other, these other things that they think are threatening. So you know, everyone loves Xinjiang food. Everyone loves Xinjiang um, dancing and stuff like that. Like that's okay and that's permitted. That should actually be accentuated in some ways, at least in certain spaces, like uh, especially for the purposes of tourism. But uh, other aspects of of Uyghur autonomy should be, you know, cut off. That they should be secular. Like there should, be, there should be ethnic, you know, cultural stuff that happens in one place, but the rest should be sort of should fit in with normative ideas of, of what Chinese identity should be.
1: Yeah, here's here's a question from, from the audience. Like, you know, this is happening in Xinjiang. It's not, is it happening in like this terror capitalism, as you call it, is happening in, in that part of, of China? There are other parts of China, other provinces where you have, you know, so-called minority groups, um, also Muslim groups. So w- what makes Xinjiang special or is that happening elsewhere as well? Mm-hmm.
0: Not, not to the same extent. So the Uyghurs and, and Tibetans to, um, to a lesser extent, but, but also significant extent are seen as, as more threatening to the state than, than other minorities. Um, and that's because Uyghurs and Tibetans speak their own language as their first language fr- primarily. They have an ancestral homeland that is seen as a threat to Chinese you know, state sovereignty in some ways, and these claim to autonomy. <clears throat> and then, of course, Uyghurs, you know, and Tibetans can't pass as Han, for the most part. I mean, the, just the appearance of their face makes it really difficult for them to, to assimilate in those ways. And then the fourth factor for Uyghurs is Islam, uh, that they're connected to Islam, which is seen in a global sense as as a threatening uh, f- faith practice. So. Those are the factors that make them different from, say, the Hui, which is the Chinese Muslim group that speaks Chinese and can pass as Han and is not seen as threatening. The Hui also have increasingly found themselves controlled by the state when it comes to certain forms of Islamic practice. There's increasing restrictions on on things that, that appear to be foreign again uh, in Islam. So if it's you know, Arabic script, for instance, like in Beijing, for instance, the, the halal signs, which is or Qingzhen signs that that in, were written in Arabic in the past have been taken down because it's seen as too close to you know uh, something that's that's foreign to China. There's restrictions that are happening in 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 the mosques and uh, among leaders in the Hui community in places like Ningxia and, and in But it's not nearly at the same level as what's happening in Xinjiang. So it's I think in Xinjiang we have to understand the colonial context that it's the source of all these natural resources. And that it's such a large population of sort of unassimilated people—twelve million Uyghurs—that's, I think, what makes it, you know, a particular sort of threat to the or seen as perceived as a threat to the state.
1: Yeah, here's one question on kind of like the the, the gender form of violence against against Uyghur women. There there have been reports that that Uyghur women have been forced to to marry uh, Han men. There there are reports on. Uh, forced forms of birth control, sterilizations. Is this part of this, this kind of genocide like in, in, in the very real sense? Mm-hmm.
0: Sure, I think that's probably where you see the, the something that, that meets the definitions of genocide or sort of a eugenics campaign most closely, especially the, the birth control aspects of that. It's not clear how widespread the, the intermarriage issues are, though there is many signs that it's happening, it's almost always between Han men and Uyghur women. The way you find information about this, for the most part, is through you know, local government posts about a family, or, you know, a couple that just married, and it's a, a minzu Tuanje marriage, which is like an ethnic solidarity marriage that is a model for all other villagers. You know, Look at this, this Han man and Uyghur woman that married. And then there's pictures of it. There's also gifts that are given to them from the government there. So there's some economic incentives that are, are tied to this. It's not clear you know, where the levels of coercion are in this system. Although you know, just based on the, the sort of the, the basic facts of the camp system and the, the sort of disparity in power in general in the region, there is certainly pressure that's being placed on these women to agree to these marriages. Um, and often it's actually not even the women that are making these decisions; it's the parents of the of the of the woman that um, have to be sort of coerced or pushed push the woman into doing it. Some of the interviews that I've done with with people, often through sort of secretive routes, because it's really difficult to do research on this, talk about how that their 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 the organization that they're a part of uh, as a worker, arranges sort of parties for Uyghur women to meet Han men, like on the weekend and that if, like, from their perspective, they, the purpose of that is, you know, is, is matchmaking. It's not clear though how widespread those things are. It, we just know that there's been a, a sort of uh, a pretty significant increase in reports of these kinds of intermarriages. There's also advertisements for Han men to come to Xinjiang to meet legal women, and that'll be arranged for them. You can see these on, on WeChat and places like that. Uh, but there's still, uh, to my knowledge, hasn't been a, a systematic study of it. And it's, it's very difficult to do that research. When it comes to the, the uh, sort of forced uh, forced family planning, we can see really clearly in reports from the camp detainees that many people were detained because of violations when it came to family planning laws. they had had more children than they were permitted. Um, typically the men were detained in those cases rather than the women. And then we've also seen lots of reports of people, you know, having cervical exams, having IUDs implanted, having abortions as part of the re-education campaign. And you can see in the the government statistics that there's been a dramatic decrease in, in birth rate in the Uyghur population over the last three years. It's not clear how much of that is, is associated or should be thought of as part you know, directly re- reflected by the IUD insertion program and, and things like that, or if it's more just that there's so much widespread family separation, like so many men are you know, apart from their families, uh, women are working in factories. So even the people that are in the camp, like they're often still separated from each other. So I think it's just really hard to reproduce right now uh, because of the economic system and the carceral system. That's in addition to the actual family planning, you know, health, public health initiatives that are being put in place. It does appear that the goal is, of the campaign is to reduce the vitality of, of future Uyghur life. And here it's important to think, you know, in a parallel to you know, at least North American context where, you know, eugenics programs were used on ethno and racial minorities, Native Americans, Black Americans, uh, as recently as the 1960s. I, th- I think that there should be seen as uh, there's some parallels there that should be drawn out. Uh, a disfavored population is targeted in this way, the special sort of campaign. That's not to say that not, you know every all, all people in China have been targeted by family planning, um, but this is a particular program that's that's directed only at Uyghurs at this at this period of time.
1: They, like a question, like you, in your in your book, you also speak about masculinity, like as a kind of the. Campaign the repression also as a kind of attack on Uyghur men and their identity, and kind of like an attempt to, you know, to degrade them, to to punish them, to humiliate uh, them. Um, what what's the rationale behind that, or what's what's the driving force behind that? Mm-hmm.
0: So my research population was primarily migrants to the city of Urumqi. Um, and because of the sort of the patriarchal and gendered. You know system of Uyghur society it's typically young men that are sent as migrants from families and that's because you know they want to keep the women closer to home but they think that the you know men can take care of themselves and so they'll send the young men out to the city to make to make some money to send back to the family in the countryside and so there's a a real gender segregation that happens in the migration and in Uyghur society in general and at the same time Young Uyghur men are seen as the most threatening uh, to Chinese society. They're seen as potential criminals almost in all contexts, particularly rural Uyghur men. You know, those that don't appear to be from the city, that you know, best based on their appearance, you can tell that they come from rural origins. They might have facial hair. A lot of young Uyghur men have have mustaches because it's a sort of sign of masculinity that you should you know have a mustache. And, and that's seen as a, as a marker of this person having low suture, having low quality um, and, you know, being potentially criminal. And so what I saw in the city was a lot of young migrants trying to sort of perform a urban urbaneness uh, by dressing in certain ways. Uh, so they would be less targeted by the police, draw less suspicion, but that they still often felt as though they were kind of hunted, that they couldn't. They really couldn't make it in the city, even though there was still a, a a better life in many ways than what it was in the village. And so they really began to turn to each other and develop friendships in a really deep and meaningful way. That something that was really instructive to me as a as a you know, white North American, who's you know grown up in a you know, hyper capitalist, individual oriented society where you you know as a man you shouldn't like have a best friend um, that you are like. You know, you know, are intimate with, in terms of like telling them everything about yourself. And, you know, even like sort of in a bodily sense, you share food with each other all the time. You should be jealous if another friend starts to sort of get into your friendship with that person. And so I I became friends with a number of these migrant groups of men. And I started to sort of, you know, see what those friendships did for them, which was really kind of give them a kind of palliative care, a way of sort of living in the city, even though there was the constant threat of police harassment and surveillance from the, the new systems that were being built, they could tell each other their stories of those moments of sort of terror. And through that, they, they were felt as though they were stronger together, that they were suffering together. Um, they also helped each other to find jobs. And you know if someone couldn't find work for a long time, they would support that person. Many of them were depressed some were contemplating suicide and things like that. And they said that their friendships were really what kept them living. And so it really, the, what these Uyghur men taught me was uh, a lesson in friendship that, that you know, caring for each other is really important, especially when you're in this sort of fragile position that it becomes a way of, 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 of building a kind of anti-colonial persona. And so that's something I write about in the book, as you know, uh, as as a model of how to resist through care work, where it's it's not resistance to the state necessarily. It's just just you know refusing to to give up.
1: Yeah, let's let's turn. There are a few questions. Let's turn to the capitalist, uh, the you know the the economic aspect. Actually, there there is a. A very large corporation, organization, uh, kind of paramilitary organization that was set up during socialist times, which goes under the name of Tuan usually, or or Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. You know how important is that actually for the for this transformation process? What you know, like what is the role of that organization behind the the repression uh, and the surveillance today? Mm-hmm. Right. So
0: the Bingtuan is a is a big organization. It has many uh, small farming colonies throughout Xinjiang. In the past, you know, prior to the 90s, it was mostly located in the north, which is where the majority Han areas were. Since the 90s and uh, the infrastructure build out, there's been new sort of expansions of the Bingtuan in places like Korla and Aksu, which are two oil rich areas, and also now Aksu is now a center for cotton production. And so it's been a real driver of the economy in Southern Xinjiang for the last couple of decades. And you should understand that the, the bingtuan is, should really be seen as sort of like a multinational corporation rather than uh, just a paramilitary thing. It's, it's a profit driven organization. It has around 2 million people, maybe 80, 90% are Han. The people that, that grew up in that system, they grew up segregated from the rest of society um, and some of them, you know, they left in the 90s and went to the city as migrants, and there's really how they discovered sort of their Xinjiang identity. And those people that I met, you know, they have a different view of of the system. They, they really feel as though, you know, that there, there's a lot of overreach in terms of how Uyghurs are being targeted now. People that have joined the Bingtuan more recently maybe have a slightly different view. They, they view the Uyghurs as a problem and as really the source of all of the, the issues in Xinjiang. And um, if, the, if the Uyghurs would just go away, their life would be so much better. So there's, there's that kind of conversation that's emerging from, from certain segments in the Bingtuan. The Bingtuan runs many of the camps. They're responsible for a great deal of the cotton production. And so there's, and, and there's forced labor involved in cotton production, especially recently. In the past, it might've been Han migrants that would come for the cotton picking season, but now it's mostly Uyghurs that are forced to go in groups and, and harvest cotton for the Bing Tuan. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's one of the central engines of, of the system of, of re-education, particularly in, in rural Northern Xinjiang and in, and in a few areas in Southern Xinjiang.
1: Okay, let's talk a little bit about you know the the, the general discourse. Um, you 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 post um, you you presented a few positions on on this on this conflict on the background that that are usually not really discussed much in in like in like mainstream media, where this is usually just handled as a as an ethnic conflict as a as a, as a war actually war on terror. So um, let's little, talk a little bit about that. Like how how do you see like this. The debate that that like there's sort of a mainstream debate, and uh, let's say in the U.S. where where you have uh, like liberals or right-wing politicians speaking about this, uh, framing it as a human rights issue. Obviously, there's the U.S.-China rivalry behind some of these these attempts. How how do you, how do you see that?
0: Mm-hmm. What's a difficult situation to to position yourself on as a as someone on the left? Because of those issues, because in some ways, like this is driven by the Chinese state, it is an authoritarian system, it's part of an authoritarian statecraft um, system, the human surveillance aspects of it are, are quite strong, you know, the grassroots workers, and that, you know, is coming out of a socialist legacy. So in some sense, you know, that is there. I think it's important though, to understand the logics of the system that, you know, why in the first place would people be there? Why would they continue to stay there? They could leave, many of them, the Han people. So I think thinking through those logics is important for just sort of understanding the rationale that in an everyday sense, people are there to make a better way of life for themselves and for their families, they're self-interested and they feel as though they're doing something on behalf of the state. So understanding that is important. I think it's also really important to think about the global complexities, the supply chains of these systems that the, you know, the cotton production that's happening in this space, uh, most of it, or a good deal of it is, is for export. Um, and many global brands are involved in the system. They're buying products that are either sourced in Xinjiang or they're actually manufactured in Xinjiang through Uyghur labor. And so we have to think about, you know, what does the drive for the lowest, you know, the lowest cost for the most product actually produce? How do, how are we all kind of complicit in building these new frontiers of capitalism and how Xinjiang is one of those spaces? So those are the sorts of things that I want to sort of draw out to show that, you know, if we were positioned in the same way as a Han person in Xinjiang, how would we how would we perceive the system? That's one sort of perspective I'm trying to get across. And the other one is this global one. How how are these things interconnected? How are we all sort of complicit in this system? How is the global war on terror, which you know really or originates in 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 the United States and and Europe? How is that complicit? How how is our our sort of fanning of that form that framing of of a savage other? How is that now being reinterpreted and implemented in China? And so I think. Thinking about those discursive, those economic global elements are important for understanding you know, how blame should be assigned. And then thinking more through the mundane everydayness of the system is important as well. So you know, really getting into the details of the system to really understand you know, where complicity actually is.
1: Yeah, there is a question actually on, on, on your, how you get your data and whether, let's say the numbers, for instance, the 1 million or more um detainees and stuff where is that coming from like what's your methodology of of research where's the data from and how what do you say about these numbers that Mm -hmm. that circulate well the
0: the numbers of people in detention are are an estimate and that's because the government is not releasing the data Um, they could you know put an end to all speculation and just tell us how many people are in the camps although i guess more recently they've said everyone has graduated there's a lot of like active obfuscation on the part of the government in terms of trying to hide this system. While at the same time, there's lots of like evidence of the system that is not fully cleaned up. So initially these camps were built through bid contracts like each you know, on the open market, each locality had to announce that they're going to build this, this facility and that they were soliciting contractors to build it. And so you can get the size of these spaces um, and so and then we can you know in the location and then you can find them on on the on the satellite images through satellite images and locate them. You can see them being built out in space it 's very clear that they 're fortified that these are not typical schools you know they have you know wall to wall surveillance systems they 're highly securitized they 're basically medium security prisons, so you know that evidence is is very clear. The numbers of people detained are estimates that are based on a whole range of different localities. At this point, you know, initially there was you know a few village, a few locations that where they were sampling to try to get an estimate, but that's no longer the case. There's now, you know, so many different data points that are pointing to you know around ten to twenty percent of the population being detained, in, in many locations. This is backed up by official rhetoric as well, where they talk about you know 10 to twenty or more percent of the population is under the sway of of extremism and needs to be reeducated. Like they say that very directly in government documents. This is government officials speaking. So there's lots of evidence to point in that direction. Right now, i'm I'm working through around 40,000 internal police documents. That were recovered by researchers working for the intercept. And you know, these documents are based in Urumqi in 2018 and 19. And they're documenting thousands of people that have been detained. You know, it has their ID number, has their name, has their location, has all of their family information. It's just kind of overwhelming evidence at this point that that the numbers are, are, are fairly accurate. It's still an estimate, though. Like I could, it could be a million and a half, it could be a million it could be a little bit less than that. It's, but it's in that ballpark. That's, that's what we know. When it comes to prison detentions, that's a little clearer because the government has released the statistics and you can see very directly that, you know, there's been a a dramatic increase uh, in the last two, three years of people being detained, arrested, and formally charged. So like, you know, out of the proportion of the population, it's, it's, it's just, of the country as a whole, it's it's a huge percentage of the population. Um, so it's at this point around five to ten percent of the Uyghur adult males have been actually formally incarcerated in prisons. And this is you know based on government statistics itself. So those are the, the sort of sources we have. In terms of the conditions in the camp, we have dozens and dozens of, of interviews with former detainees, detailed interviews that are you know go over hours oftentimes it you know I interviewed some some of these detainees as the first you know non non person uh, the first researcher to actually speak to them about their experience in the camp and I have no reason to doubt that the vast majority of what they're saying is you know is the truth that they experienced they might exa- exaggerate something here or they may forget a detail that's sort of what humans do um, but in general I, I don't doubt the veracity of their of what they're telling us
1: okay. Let's, let's turn to the, let's say the, the composition of, of, well, the resistance may be too much like, like sort of Uyghur organizations, Uyghur associations, forms of, of, um, you know, like sort of speaking out uh, what, what does exist in, in, uh, in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, in these regions, what, what, uh, outside, what's the composition, what are the sort of political directions uh, of the discourses these, these groups push? Well,
0: in, in, Xinjiang itself—it's—it's it's very difficult now for people to organize in in any sort of direct way. That's not to say that everyone agrees with the system. Both you know, Uyghurs and Han people—many are some, at least—are are in disagreement. At least uh, among the Han population, at least to some extent. So when I was there in two thousand eighteen, I, I talked to some people in sort of you know, non-obvious <laughs> ways, as I was shopping in bookstores or you know, traveling in taxis and in, and in parks. I talked to them about, you know, what's happening to their family members, about the camps and, you know, people would tell me that it's, you know, it's, it's really happening. This is what's happening to their family members. Outside in, in Kazakhstan, where I've been doing research more recently, people that have fled across the border talked about how they would, you know, meet outside of, the, outside of surveillance um, systems. Uh, in, like some of them would go to saunas where they would talk uh, kind of openly um, with each other. But people are just so worried about surveillance, even in their own homes, that they're, you know, they just try to, you know, not talk about these things. So there's lots of people that are just keeping a kind of silence even as they're suffering to such a large extent. In the past, there was Han sort of people that identify as from Xinjiang and and, and really identify with Uyghurs and wanted to take up kind of ally positions to help Uyghurs. Um, and I read a chapter about them in my book. But it's not clear to me, you know, that was written in 2015 and 16. It's not clear to me what's happened since then, if they're still able to really, you know, actively help Uyghurs by, you know, helping to get them out of camps and things like that. There is some evidence from Uyghurs that I've interviewed about Han neighbors, you know, letting them use their phone uh, to call out, to get information out or leaking information We've, you know, some of the leaks that have come out have been, you know, Coming from those sort of allies that, that, that really want to see an end to the system. So there's that sort of thing. Outside of China, China there is more organizing. Most of it is, is really centered around sort of ethno, the, the Uyghur ethno state or East Turkestan, those sorts of movements, or it's um, focused more on human rights issues. The Uyghur Human Rights Project is doing really good work when it comes to human rights um, research and, and you know, sort of advocacy work. A lot of it is focused more at, at sort of lobbying efforts, with you know, at, you know, not at the grassroots, but more at you know, the governmental level. Um, and so, I've been really happy to see the the Uyghur Solidarity Campaign in the UK emerge recently, which is labor rights activists that are taking up this this um, this issue and thinking about the supply chain aspects, and you know, going to large corporations and and you know, demanding change. Um, and so, thinking from a labor perspective and, and from a sort of internationalist solidarity perspective, um, that's beginning to emerge. Most of the Uyghur and Kazakh leftists that I know, you know, that are some of them are you know junior scholars or you know researchers or journalists, they have to maintain a pretty low profile when it comes to this kind of activism because their family members are still back in China, and so a lot of them are sort of guiding from from behind those positions. So a lot of the, the people I work with most directly are are in that in that category. People that really want to see change and change from the left, but can't, can't speak openly and organize openly. And so it, it really is sort of incumbent on, on people that have pr- protections as citizens to stand in solidarity and you know really amplify those voices as we can. Not that we should lead them but that we should you know understand that one of the things that we can do as protected citizens is is speak, and so we can we can amplify the voices of people that that, that don't have that.
1: Yeah, there, there's one question on on um, you know how Chinese leftists could support um, Uyghurs in, the, in their in their struggle um, against this oppression, and I, I want to I want to add I, I thought it was I I think it's really I'm impressive the you describe uh, certain, sort of the difference between the older Han. Migrants, or, or like sort of um, people who, whose parents or grandparents migrated to, to um, Xinjiang uh, some decades ago, and then the then then there are more recent uh, Han migration and and the different positions they have. So these are basically two, you know, Chinese leftists, and then the, these two generations. How, how does it differ, and how, what forms of solidarity are there uh, expressed? <laughs> When I lived in Xinjiang in
0: 2014 and 15, I found that the people that were, you know, invested in sort of LGBT issues in in Xinjiang, like Han, Han folks that I met, they were the ones that were the most sympathetic to the you know, Uyghur position. And, you know, they would like volunteer, you know, without any prompting from me, talk about how Uyghurs are discriminated against and how terrible it is and how, you know, the system needs to change. Those sorts of things. And then there's the other group that that you mentioned too, the the, the sort of Bendiren, the local or Lao Xinjiang Ren, the local people uh, who identify as from Xinjiang and like they like Uyghur food is their food. Um, those kinds of people, they also had some solidarity with Uyghurs. So what that's telling me is that people that have some, you know, that that have suffered in some way. Because of their identity, their identifications, they're able to empathize to a greater extent with the, the Uyghur position. And so I feel like if there is more sort of information sharing, more solidarity building through the, between those communities, I think there could be some, some you know, forms of, of collective movement. But it's so difficult to organize in China because there's so much surveillance, there's so little information flow that it, it makes it difficult to, to do that. And then the other thing that's a factor here is among you know, some you know, human rights democracy advocates in China, Islamophobia has affected them also. So you know, we see that in, at least in the United States with like support for the Trump administration's policies which they see as sort of anti-China. They are anti-China. So they're kind of latching onto that, but they still at the same time might agree with the Chinese state's position on the Uyghurs because they think that Uyghurs really are a threat to sort of you know Han safety or something. So there's some work that needs to be done in in talking it through the terror discourse and what that does to people. And so so that would be, I think, a next step for, for building more solidarity. The the labor rights folks in China, I think, could also be well positioned to you know, understand the Uyghur position, because you know what's happening in in these factory in camp factories is a kind of unfreedom that's you know at another level from the sort of labor struggles that that people have been invested in in Eastern China, but they are related to them, and so I think there's ways that solidarity could be built there too.
1: Yeah. Well, we we know m- many people know this, but let's point it out that it's, it's a very sensitive issue. Yeah. In China, to talk publicly about this question at all, and you can be punished for, you know, in different ways. Even as a Han person in in eastern China, if you, you know, express any kind of political views or criticize the government on this, just to make that clear. Um, yeah, the, that's also why you know why we. It's part of the reason why we talk to you here, <laughs> and why we can't invite anyone neither from, from uh, uh, the Uyghur um, left, let's say, nor from, from the Han Chinese uh, left, because uh, it's very um, risky to, to speak about that in, in public. Yeah, let, let's you know, we have, we have about 10, 15 minutes left. Uh, one question that was also mentioned um, in, in, the, uh, in the question from the audience is, uh, you know, and, and you, you kind of hinted to that too, like solidarity work, but like, so what can we do outside China, sort of, um, you know, in leftist collectives, I, when I, when I, you know, started reading about this more, uh, I kind of felt that, you know, like, there are some similarities, actually, with, let's say, um, uh, like Palestine, or other regions where the left has, you know, are big difference between Israel and China, that that's for sure. But like, that's, I mean, in the sense of like, uh, whether the left addresses such an issue, um, and gives it some importance or not, and in which way it does address that. And Xinjiang is basically not on the agenda much except for this kind of human rights uh, discourse, Uh, even from left-wing groups, there's, there's, there are very few exceptions. There's a group in in the UK that's kind of talking about these labor issues kind of connected to the Labour Party as far as I understand. So what, what, do you know any, any other like sort of um, examples? Do you have any proposals? And, um, and also why do you think that, that, you know, people don't like left, sort of left-wing initiatives don't touch upon this issue or stay silent. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it, it is a it is a bit of a puzzle because if you look at the like sort of Kashmir issues, there's a great, there's a good deal of solidarity with, you know, people that are, are fighting for greater autonomy for Kashmir. And maybe that's because India is seen as a democratic space or something. I don't know exactly what the reasons are. One of the things that's, that's, you know, present in the world is anti-China, you know, xenophobia that's been fostered by major powers like, like the United States. Um, And so I think a lot of leftists sort of, you know, first reaction is, you know, I don't want to participate in that. And so that's, you know, sort of where they, where they start from. And then they're not clear on what the issues really are in Xinjiang. And a lot of this has been muddied by by Chinese state media, but also people that amplify that voice um, that are on the left. That has made it quite confusing, I think, for some people to know exactly what are the facts on the ground. There's also just so few researchers that are are writing about this, that it it does sort of, in some cases, feel as though that a lot of the research is coming from particular individuals and they have their own political affiliation. And so that's actually pushed me to be sort of more vocal and present with my sort of left-leaning perspective and sort of lead with that to show that, you know, this isn't just a right-wing issue. This is a left, that left, we need to think about this from the left as well. When it comes to actual solidarity work and what can be done, I think building those sort of coalitions across these spaces from Hong Kong to Kashmir to Palestine, those, that's I think really where we need to be thinking in terms of of how we can network and how we can think collectively around this. What makes it more challenging is that there's there's not a large population of of, of Uyghurs or Turkic Muslims who can really lead that effort, and it makes you know for good reasons makes you know white leftists like me really uncomfortable to be in a leadership position in a in a movement for people that's not my own. So I think we need to really you know, support those Turkic Muslims that are on the left to, to help lead those those efforts in some ways as they're able. But at the same time, we need to do more sort of awareness building about the, 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 the difficulty of those people on the left speaking for themselves. So that's, you know, sort of where we're at. We just need more institution building and and, and sort of more networking and I think this campaign in the UK is really one of the first efforts to to sort of lead that in that direction. I think that if more if we have more people that are positioned differently from from white Euro Americans speaking on behalf of Uyghurs, that would also be helpful, especially people on the left. Um, so I'm really encouraged by the the um, Muslim American student associations that I'm involved with in the U.S. that are are starting to really speak on this issue and, and kind of speak out of that Palestinian experience. That is really useful. And also the Kashmiri Americans that are also doing that work is important too. So I think encouraging that kind of collective solidarity. So it's it's not you know just a sort of white imperialist effort. And it's very clearly not that. Um, I think signaling that is really important and how we should think about when we're organizing.
1: Okay, there are a couple of questions actually about your, your- about the book you are going to publish this year, like which is, I think, based on your dissertation, and and then the next book. So can you can you uh, explain like when when will the book come out and um and then what about your next project?
0: Yeah, so the, my uh, editors at Duke said that the book will be in the warehouse by November December of of this year, so it should be available for you know wide wide release at that point. There might be some ways of getting copies of it before that. I could probably share, you know, pieces with people if, if they're interested. The second book is is more of a public-facing book. It's through Columbia um, Global Reports, which is a it's really through the Columbia Journalism School. So it's the, the editor of the series is, you know, a, a writer for the New Yorker. And it's really more of a storytelling book where I'm thinking through the effects of technology in Xinjiang and in other places on people's lives and also thinking through those global connections. Um, So it's, you know, one, the the conclusion is behind Seattle stands Xinjiang. So I'm I'm thinking about how, you know, global technology is interlinked, how people uh, are, that that, that part of the issue here is how ethics is taught in in technology design Um, and also about how you know the banality of systems of of bureaucratic thinking of of unthinking really produces really profound forms of cruelty and how technology can expand that to uh, uh, you know put it at a different scale um, and that's really what we're seeing in xinjiang is you know, smart camps uh, where there's you know a single guard can watch hundreds of, of detainees at the same time and how they you know can use motion sensors to make sure that people sit on their stools for hours and hours. Like that sort of technology is is, is really what's driving and sort of enabling, extending, amplifying the system. So that's the the book it's, you know, eventually we'll turn into a larger sort of academic project that will be a, you know, another academic book but it'll be some time before that second book becomes that.
1: Yeah, maybe like, you know, um, the, so we have to wait for the book space <laughs> uh, a little bit. I know you you, uh, you have kind of a, I'm not sure like, how you call it, a blog or like series of articles on, on sub-China. Maybe you can shortly introduce that because I, I found there a lot of very interesting, shorter articles that explain or give some background to a lot of what you've said today.
0: Yeah, so I write a regular column for sub-China on Xinjiang issues and their Xinjiang columnist. Most of those pieces are you know, really storytelling, it's focused on individual stories, but trying to place them in a broader social context. So it's, it's what the work of an ethnographer is to sort of think about social structure and how that informs the individual and shapes individual life. And so that's the goal of it. I try to kind of alternate perspectives, thinking from Han perspectives, thinking from legal perspectives, to really begin to unpack what this looks like on the ground. You know, there's some limits in terms of what I'm able to do, because a lot of it is you know, filtered through people that have access in diaspora or, you know, the re- research I've done in Kazakhstan. Um, but I do try to really kind of stay current on what's happening there and, and really comment on it as much as I can. So that's one place you can go. I've also published some stuff in China file, a little, some longer pieces. And, you know, I do some of that public facing work as I can.
1: Yeah, I just want to encourage everyone to to check out the, um, the, the sub-China, articles because they I th- they really explain a lot especially if you want to you know hear kind of from the people you know because you interview them directly and and and, and get some understanding of like sort of everyday life experiences of people um, yeah. And I also thought it, it was it, it's it's very good that you you uh, you have Uyghur and Han people actually talking about this um so that it's it's not uh it's not just like from from one side but but giving a, a good background, there are lot, lots of articles, right? Like it's not just a few. So uh, if people want to get some more answers uh, to some of the questions we haven't actually addressed today, and then on, the, on your book, I you know there, there's also your dissertation, right? Like that people can can download and and and, and read, and um, it's very very interesting um, account of, of your research and 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 your concepts and your your results. Um, um I thought it was uh, it was really good um well written as well. Oh, thanks. Um, one, one, exactly one personal um question is because I you know I kind of have the same problem sometimes. How do you deal with um you know when you talk to, to these people? I mean, there's a lot of misery, a lot of suffering that, that that you know that that you basically cover that you, you know, you you listen to, you you put into your articles. But um, and and uh, you know that's 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 these people's experience. How do you deal with this this kind of you know kind of in a way traumatic experience that people tell you about? Yeah,
0: it's not easy, um, especially when I you know some of these people are very close friends of mine that have now you know disappeared into these camps. You know some of those young men that I wrote about, you know that I was developing these really close friendships with, are gone. And so, you know, if you really spend time thinking about them and thinking about where they are now and knowing what I know doing the research I do, what their experience is probably like, that's really troubling and and you always wonder if you're somehow responsible in some way for, you know, causing more suffering for them. You, you know, should you have anticipated that this could have happened or something? Uh, so those are questions that I think about a lot. It's it's hard. I I have a lot of friends here though, a lot of Uyghur friends that I'm in touch with now. And you know, we talk and we share kind of what we're going through. They share what what's in front of them. And I think that sort of solidarity, those sorts of friendships are are really what sustain us and and you know keep me going because I I know that this can make a difference for people. And then, you know, having people respond to your work is also motivating to see that people want to read and, you know, come to a talk like this and, and learn more about it makes you realize that, you know, your work has value and it's important to do. It is difficult though, because you, you know, I do, a I answer a lot of questions from journalists um, and, you know, and I talk to, you know, policy people and there's a lot of demands on your time, but I do feel like at the end of the day, it's, it's worth it. And um, I'm glad to do this work. And, and I'm also glad to see that more people are sort of stepping forward and, and also beginning to to take, you know, some forms of leadership on this issue too. That's important and I hope to see more of that in the future.
1: Well, thank you, Darren. It was great to have you here and hear this and, you know, that you share your insight and um, a lot of people, I think, um, don't know, still don't know a lot, especially from the left, don't know much about these facts or just put them in question because they come from sources or the things the information comes from sources they don't trust and you know um so i hope um giving having having more of an opportunity to listen to your read your stuff and there are also some other people right like apart uh, from you who are uh, looking at this from a leftist perspective or left wing perspective so i think it's important to give you a voice and, and and share um what you have to say thank you very much yeah sorry uh, we haven't you know obviously covered all the <laughs> Or the um, or the questions, uh, Darren. May, maybe i you know. I, I think I would send you some of the questions we haven't answered, sure. um, and so um, maybe there's a way we can we can uh, share the, the your answers then on 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 Gongshao or somewhere else. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks for having me. It's it's been great to be here. Okay, thank you. Okay, before we 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 um, um, we stop this this um, webinar together, let me shortly um, talk about the next event that, that, that we will have, um, which will be in two weeks on uh, January uh, 23, Saturday. Uh, the title is Taiwan, Taiwan's Left in the Era of Chinese-American Rivalry. And we will speak to Brian Hu, uh, founding editor of New Bloom magazine. And we'll talk about uh, progressive forces in Taiwan, their history and connections with similar forces in the mainland, uh, mainland China and Hong Kong. And also for, you know, uh, we talk about possibilities of progressive change in Taiwan and uh, chance for alliances of progressive forces in the wider region. And then as the title says, we will also address the, the question of, um, you know, how this is related to the China-US relations and also the recent uh, developments um, in Hong Kong. There, you know, more information on this event you, you find on the Gong Chao website. There was a question earlier in, in the QA where we'll publish the recording. That will also definitely be uh, uh, either put on Gong Chao or linked there. So please check that out. Yeah, that's it for today. I, yeah, we have, we have, we are living in weird time. So I hope you stay well and healthy. And I uh, see you again in two weeks. Taijian, so goodbye.